The beginning chapters of Deuteronomy feel like deja vu because these are stories that uh, are excerpted in recollected form in sermons, excerpts from uh, Exodus that are retold for purposes that are clear, excerpts from Numbers that are retold for purposes that are clear, and that is namely to motivate the people to not be like their Israelite forebears. The ancestors before them had wandered in unbelief and had demonstrated rebellion and wickedness. So Moses says, I'm just going to remind you of these stories. I don't know if they all sat around a big campfire when he did this, but whatever setting for Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3 was happening in the plains of Moab, Moses was highlighting for them what their ancestors had gone through and what had resulted in the judgment of God. And now this new generation is to be motivated to trust the Lord, to walk wisely, and not be characterized by rebellion. We saw last um, Sunday evening together that in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, part of what he is reminding them of are victories. He reminded them of the victory over King Sihon, which uh, ruled in an area over here, and the Israelites conquer it. And then King Og of Bashan rules in this area, and the Israelites conquer him. And you'll notice that, uh, well, these are on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So this is not the land of Canaan, but it is a foreshadowing of the victory. That was the idea. The idea is that this victory over Sihon in the south and this victory over Og in the north would give the Israelites the extra spiritual oomph that they might need in their ease of trepidation and proneness to being afraid to see that the Lord brings down mighty kings and even a giant like Og. And if the Lord can do this on the eastern side of the Jordan River, he doesn't get weaker on the western side of the Jordan River. Like, we can trust him. We can trust him with what is to come as we pass over. What we have tonight in verses 12 to 17 is a reference to the lands brought, up to our, uh, brought into the foreground of our minds last week. In verses 12 to 17, we're going to look at the land for the two and a half tribes and then some instructions that are going to follow. And I'll break that down as we, as we progress. But in verses 12 to 17, first of all, this section, land for two and a half tribes. The background to this is the book of Numbers, chapter 32. Because these Israelites who were victorious, a few of these tribes said, we actually kind of like this land. We like this eastern part of the uh, side of the Jordan River. And we think we'd just like to stay here. So verses 12 to 17 is about land that's going to be allotted for two and a half tribes. The background is that these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, looked at the lusciousness of the land that they had just conquered. And they said, we don't want to cross with the rest of you. This really upset Moses. It's probably an understatement. He was really upset in Numbers 32. And he said, what are you thinking? How could you come this far and then discourage the rest of your people to basically say, we're not going to travel with you? So after some negotiation, in Numbers 32, they agreed that they would come over the promise to the promised land, cross that Jordan River to fight, and then after the western side of the Jordan River had been subdued, two and a half tribes would go back over. And the result would end up looking like this. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, half of the tribes on the western side, half-tribe on the east, 
separated by this Jordan River, they would go back after having conquered this land, crossing over with the other Israelites, and then returning to receive this negotiated territory. But initially, people are not trying to say, all right, we're going to go right up to the Jordan River and then we're not going to cross. No, they were looking forward to crossing. And so what happens in Numbers 32 is somewhat unique in the biblical storyline. And then in verse 12 tonight, when we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. That's a reference to the valley of the Arnon River here, all the way up to the Jabbok. This is going to go to Reuben and Gad. So when he says to the Reubenites and to the Gadites, he's referencing some areas, Aroer and the Arnon Valley, all the way up to what would be the, the uh, Jabbok River that's going to go to two of these tribes, the Reubenites and the Gadites. Now, we know they conquered more than this. What about Og's territory? Well, verse 13 says, The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of the Raphaim. And so this land, north of the Jabbok River, of Bashan is going to go to the half-tribe of Manasseh. And, and so the fulfillment in Joshua looks like this, foreshadowed with the, the victories that Deuteronomy is remembering here. Now, there are some Manasseh descendants that are referenced next. But what I want you to know about these guys, verses 14 and 15, is that they're both from Manasseh, and they're named Jair in verse 14 and Makir in verse 15. This is still a way of talking about the Manasseh area as a whole that's going to take over Bashan in the north. Jair the Manassite took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Ger- Gersherites and the Makathites, and called the villages after his own name. Now, I was looking at some Bible maps earlier today, because I don't know where the Gersherites is. I've got to look this up to figure out how to talk about it. And so the Gesherites apparently were in an area up here and the Makathites around this area here where it's, it's sort of bordering peoples. So you've got these two areas. Referencing them is about trying to, to say where the border stopped. In other words, the, the uh, border for the Bashan territory conquered now and given to uh, half the tribe of Manasseh is going to go west as far as these other places called the Gesherites and the Makathites. And uh, Jair apparently called uh, these villages after his own name, Havoth Jair. Jair is probably a reference to the descendants here and not to the actual person. Jair referencing a kind of head or clan within Manasseh. So sometimes when you read a person's name, it's not actually the individual who's in view anymore. They've already come and gone. It's about the the people that have come from them. Just like when you hear um, Reuben, you're not talking about the individual anymore from Jacob's day. He's long gone. By talking about Reuben, you now mean the descendants of the one earlier known as Reuben. That's probably what's going on with Jair the Manassite here with the descendants um, that are going to occupy this area. In verse 15, to Makir, another Manassite, I gave Gilead. These two verses are simply digging their heels more deeply in that the half-tribe of Manasseh gets this whole area. So it's referencing some names like the Makathites and the Gesherites that don't have any great importance in the biblical storyline. But it's at least pressing the point that the land of Og no longer belongs to Og. We've got his iron bed 
according to chapter 3, to show that he is no more. Okay, So in verse 16, To the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon. So now it's moving backward from the Jabbok River to the Arnon River. It's just repeating now in reverse order what we saw earlier. And then with the middle of the valley as a border, as far as over the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. Do you remember that uh, these Ammonites here in Ammon, they were not to be touched. It was like the Moabites in uh, the land of Moab or the Edomites in the land of Edom. These Ammonites, like Moab and, and Edom, were not under the conquest. And therefore, when the Israelites passed by or through, they were not to engage with warfare. Um, And we're told in verse 17 that this area was the Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border. From Kinnereth, in verse 17, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. What is going on there with verse 17? So Kinnereth is also known as the Sea of Galilee. That's helpful. That's what the New Testament calls it. So the Old Testament refers to that same sea as Kinnereth or Chinnereth. And then the Salt Sea, that's another word for the Dead Sea. So the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And then there's a reference to the Jordan. What's verse 17 doing? Verse 17 is basically giving you the western border. That's what's happening. It's giving you the western border of the people in, who have uh, occupied this area of the, of the, uh, of the land. The, the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea with the Jordan in the middle. That's, that's like cutting the tribal inheritance. So now go to the fulfillment. Notice here, Gad goes right up to the Jordan in the Dead Sea. Reuben goes right up to the Dead Sea. The Manassites, this half-tribe, goes right up to this border where the Sea of Galilee is right here. Verse 17 is trying to give you bordering information. But what about that last phrase in verse 17? The slopes of Pisgah on the east. Pisgah, let me back up a bit. Pisgah and Mount Peor are in the same area. It seems that Pisgah is a mountain range. And I didn't mean Peor, I meant Mount Nebo. Okay, I'm trying to talk through this and not make a mistake. So bear with me. (laughs) So Mount Nebo and, and Pisgah are the same area. Pisgah is likely the mountain peaks and Nebo a particular peak The reason that matters is because the slopes of Pisgah on the east are the east of the Dead Sea. So back on this earlier map, uh, Mount Pisgah or Nebo would be about in this area, east of the Dead Sea. It's where Moses is going to die. So if you read this language about Pisgah, here's what you're going to read at the very end of Deuteronomy. Moses goes to Mount Pisgah, climbs the peak of Mount Nebo, and dies. So this area uh, where, um, where, where there's going to be some, some bordering information highlighted here, it's actually going to have a very personal geographical importance for Moses' life. He will be dead there at the end of the book. All right, so verses 12 to 17. What did all this geography do? Okay, zooming out for a moment, we learned last week that King Sihon and King Og had fallen in the book of Numbers, and they were remembering those victories. Verses 12 to 17 is basically telling you who's going to get this part of uh, Sihon's territory and who's going to get Og's territory. That's all that geographical stuff is telling you. Who gets what. And then verses 18 to 20. Verses 18 to 20 is an agreement with the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. 
The agreement that's reiterated here is based in Numbers 32. This is not new information. This is a reiteration of the agreement. It's like Moses is saying, can you guys hand me the contract that we all signed back when we were... So I'm going to unroll that and let's just go over the terms. Do you guys remember that this is what we agreed upon and here's the terms? The conditions are this. I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I've given you, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given. Here's the interplay in verse 18 and verse 20. Verse 18 talks about the Lord your God has given you this land. And then in verse 20, you shall return to his possession, which I have given. So is this, is this uh, the word of the Lord? Is this Moses' commandment? Well, the complication of this is that God did not say to Abraham's descendants, go over and inherit and find as your allotment King Sihon's territory and King Og's territory. Some of you aren't going to pass over the, the uh, Jordan River. That wasn't the understanding leading up toward that event in Numbers. But because of the concession Moses made, the negotiation in Numbers 32, when Moses gives a command, he represents the authority of the Lord. So the updated information of the Israelites is that while this was not initially envisioned from their perspective that this is going to be part of the land, they now want this eastern part. And so God will give it to them. Old Testament interpreters are probably right who see here a desire to maintain unity among the people. Even though they're not all in the promised land, if you look at the map that would sh show you what's going on in the book of Joshua, when they all inherit these allotments, they're still, I know the Jordan River is there, you know, ignore the Jordan River for a moment, but they're all sort of together, sort of. So the Jordan River is there and that's important. But it's not like the half-tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben said, wait, we can't have these lands? Then we're heading back, you know, back to Egypt, back to wherever. They're still all congregated seemingly together. And that seems to be part of the desire that Moses wants the people of Israel not distant away. Even if they're on the other side of the Jordan River, that seems more desirable than any alternative that rebellion might stir up and, and provoke. So this means... God is going to allow them this land. And this means Moses in verse 20 is saying, this land I have given. You're going to return there for a possession. Now, under Joshua, they're going to cross over the Jordan River and various cities in formerly Sihon's territory and formerly Og's territory, they're going to leave behind their wives and children. The men of war, that is. When it says in verse 18, your men of valor shall cross over armed. We're talking about the people counted in the census of Numbers 26. That last census in the book of Numbers, those who were counted as men of war, ages 20 and upward. And that number are going to cross over. But they're not taking all their families because they're all planning to come back. So of the men of war's families that are part of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, the wives and the children are staying. Here's what you need to know about the conquest. It doesn't take a few weeks. It doesn't take a few months. It takes years. 
So when the men of valor in the book of Joshua, belonging to Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, cross over the Jordan River, they will not see their wives and children for the years of the conquest, approximately seven years, and then they shall return. So this is a heavy negotiation. This is a weighty consideration. And then in verse 19, only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much, shall remain in the cities I've given you. He's talking about the cities east of the Jordan. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers. That's a warfare idea. Giving rest to your brothers looks like the success of the conquest. That's what that is. Until then, they don't have rest. There is a need to subdue and exercise dominion. This language is actually picked up in Joshua. In Joshua 22, verse 4, Now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as He promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. That's in Joshua 22. So you know what Joshua does later on in the book is actually narrate the fulfillment of what we've seen earlier where God is pledging to give them rest and when that rest happens in the land, they can return and Joshua says in Joshua 22, that time has arrived. The Lord has given you rest. You may now go. But the years leading up to that green light to return were years separated from wives and children. In verses 21 to 22, Moses' encouragement to Joshua is recollected. He says in verse 21, and I commanded Joshua at that time. This was back in Numbers 32 and that whole season of their life. They're just remembering, right? Recollecting the history. I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. Remember these two kings. The king Sihon, King Og. Those two kings. I feel like I have said the words Sihon and Og more in dealing with Numbers and Deuteronomy than I have my entire life put together. I mean, we just had a lot of references to these two kings. And I don't think in, until studying these books in some depth, I had any sense of how often, either by name or by implication, these kings are mentioned. I mean, they're everywhere. And they're going to appear in some psalms as well with the victories of, over Sihon and Og. Turns out they're really, really important, more than I ever thought they were. Uh, so uh, these two kings, he says, I, what happens is in verse 21, your eyes have seen the victory over them. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. This is encouragement for Joshua. He lived through the defeat of Sihon and Og. And now Joshua is to go into the promised land knowing that if it's Jericho or if it's Ai or if it's anywhere else in the land, south or north, God will give them victory. They need to trust the Lord. In verse 22, to Joshua, he says, you shall not fear them. These kingdoms into which he's crossing, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. You see, what they're to remember is that Yahweh's a divine warrior. He parts the sea in, in the Red Sea and causes walls of water to stand up, leaving dry land for a path of the Exodus people. This is a divine warrior. He crushes the Egyptian armies who pursue the Israelites. This is a divine warrior. In Exodus, he defeats the Amalekites. In Exodus 17, he is a divine warrior. 
When you read in Numbers, no matter who is coming against the Israelites, as they seek Him, delight in Him, and trust Him, they're given victory. If they turn from Him, the Lord's favor is not on them in battle. They are to know you're going across the Jordan and Joshua, don't fear these kingdoms. Just remember what I did to these two kings on the eastern side. I'll do it on the western side. I'm the divine warrior. It is the Lord your God who fights for you. So Moses' encouragement to Joshua, just a small little snippet of our uh, passage tonight, but fleshed out much more later in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31 is a charge from Moses to Joshua. We won't look at it tonight, but just by way of reference, Deuteronomy 31 is a lengthier charge from Moses to Joshua to stand firm and to don't turn from the Lord and to be courageous. And then that language, here near the beginning of the book and near the end of the book, it opens the book of Joshua as well. Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore go, be strong and courageous. Just reiterating that charge to Joshua to be encouraged in the good fight. That's verses 21 and 22. Now the last recollection that fits with our passage tonight is Moses remembering, yeah, Joshua, you're going to go. I'm not going to go. You're going to go and you're not to fear those kings. But I've been denied entrance to the promised land. So verses 23 and through 29 is about Moses' plea. To enter the land. At this point in the book of Deuteronomy and Moses' life, he's approximately 120 years old. And Moses is like, well, I don't feel like I'm done. I could go. I could go. (laughs) I want to go, Lord. Come this far. But you see, something's happened that the book of Numbers is also in the background to illuminate. Because in Numbers 21, uh, or Numbers chapter 20, in Numbers 20, Moses was told to speak to a rock. And water would flow from it by the provision of the Lord. In Exodus, he struck a rock with a staff. But in Numbers, different instruction was given. But Moses was provoked by the Israelites. He was angry. And in his anger, not only did he not follow the Lord's instruction, he struck instead of spoke. He struck it twice, demonstrating an unrestrained anger on public display as the leader and covenant mediator of Israel. And given the the status that Moses plays... That he's not among the Israelites in their tents without any significant role. He's the one who approaches the tent of meeting and returns with words from God. And there is a sacredness to Moses' role and a uniqueness in his place as the covenant mediator. And his public humiliation carried with it a grave consequence. Moses was not an unbelieving rebel like the wilderness generation. But he did share in their consequence... Even if his heart was not the same, he would be denied entrance to the land. Here's Moses' recollection of this. In verse 23, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Well, that's that's an incredible verse. That verse is Moses saying, Lord, everything I've seen, The mighty deeds of plagues upon Egypt, a crossing of the Red Sea, all the provision of miracles in the wilderness and manna every morning and victories over enemies. He said, Lord, you've only begun. You've only begun to show your servant, speaking of himself there, your servant Moses, your greatness and your mighty hand. I've only begun to, and I'm 120. I'm just getting started, I bet. 
to see such works of which you're capable, that is. And then he says, and not only God, have you just begun to show your might. There is no rival of yours in the known wide world. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts? And that's not a challenge from Moses that somebody go search and find. It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. There is no other God. What God in heaven or what God on earth is like our God? Well, there, there is none. They're idols. They're idols animated by principalities and powers that will be subdued by the light of the world. There is no God like our God. This is one of those verses that forms a kind of hinge conceptually into Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4 is one of the richest chapters in the book. It is filled with amazing and deep theological reflections on God and his relationship with his people. Very much looking forward to thinking about that chapter with you in the weeks ahead. But much of that has to do with the fact that there is no God like our God. And Moses knows this. He knows what it was like to come down the mountain after spending days and days and weeks receiving words from God to see the people at the bottom with a golden calf. He knows the absurdity of idolatry. He knows the righteous indignation that God would rightly feel as our God is a jealous God. Not in any sinful sense, but a God who knows there is no glory due any other thing worshipped. There is only God and His worth to be, righteously, to be rightfully worshipped and glorified. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? There is none. Verse 25, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. That good hill country in Lebanon. Can't you just think about the emotion in Moses' heart? He has been told that he's not going. And it's like Moses is saying, Lord, please, I'm begging you, please let me go and see it. Let me go over and see this land. It's not just any land, it's a good land. You've said it, God, I believe it. I believe it's the kind of land you said it is. I want to go. Please let me go. I want to see that land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. Lebanon, let me get to this map here. Lebanon, well, I don't have a, a great shot of it. <laughs> but Lebanon would be an area beyond this. It's like the promised land and then some. It's lush and fertile and widespread Canaanite territory. Moses is saying, I want to go see, I want to see all of it. I want to see the hill country in the south all the way up to the reaches of the north. I want to behold the good land. I wonder if you're surprised with verse 26. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. Now scholars think about this and they think, well, what is exactly Moses' intent here? Is Moses trying to skirt some responsibility and basically say this is your fault, Israelites? I mean, if you go back to Numbers 20, there was conflict between the Israelite camp and Moses. Moses was angered with the Israelites. He'd been doing this for 40 years and he was like, I don't think I can take this anymore. I mean, it's not like this was his third day on the job. All these decades into dealing with the murmuring unbelief of the wilderness generation and now the new generation was indicating with signals of, of murmuring and opposition. 
Are they going to be like that earlier generation? Moses was livid. But it does not justify Moses' action. It can be the case, I think, to understand in verse 26, when Moses says, because of you, that Moses is struggling with not only the responsibility that he bears, he believes that they are complicit in that whole scene that resulted in Numbers chapter 20. He doesn't think they're innocent and he's the only guilty one, in other words. Now, people quibble about this to say, well, Moses in his sinfulness might even have examples here where we would want him to speak a little bit better than he's doing and be a little more owning of responsibility and, and less blaming maybe than he, he, he may seem. But he does say here, the Lord was angry with me. He, this is not lost on Moses. The Lord was not indifferent to what Moses did. God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck it twice. And you know what God didn't do and say, well, you know, Moses did it his way. That's fine. No, no, no. The, the Lord had given direction to Moses that Moses rejected. In other words, if Moses was, was upset in Numbers 20 at the rebellious Israelites, he doesn't need to join them. He doesn't need to become someone who ignores what God has said and do something else. And those kinds of responses are within the temptation and the snares and seeds of all the Israelites' heart. And in that moment, in being frustrated with the Israelites, he started to put his foot in their direction by ignoring what God had said. After being frustrated that they ignored what God had said. So in verse 26, the Lord said to me, enough from you. Don't speak to me of this matter again. You know what I think this suggests? Is that Moses would persistently seek the Lord's forgiveness and grace in this area. Lord, please. Lord, please let me go over. I want to go over. And he, and he wouldn't relent. Now, I don't think the Lord's response here to Moses means that we shouldn't persevere in prayer. I don't think this is an illustration about, you know, when you pray and it doesn't seem to be the Lord answering, you need to stop praying. The Lord said to Moses, enough from you. So unless you get that word from the Lord, don't, don't, you know, don't look at this as an example here. This is not about persevering in prayer. But it is to say Moses wanted so badly to go over the Jordan and so badly to see the breadth and goodness of the land that he kept pleading with the Lord. And the Lord says... We're not going to talk about this anymore, Moses. We're shutting the book on this. Case closed. And then he says to Moses in verse 27, Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward, southward and eastward. So by Mount Nebo, or I should say Mount Nebo is on this mountain range, Pisgah, east of the Dead Sea, right there at the edge, Mount Nebo, Go up to Pisgah, where Mount Nebo is, and lift up your eyes. The elevation of this mountain is so great that he would be able to see vastness of territory many miles in the distance of the good land. But this is God's way of saying, that's as close as you're getting. That's as close as you're getting. Go up to Pisgah and lift up your eyes. When will Moses do this? Moses is remembering, this is what God said to me. Moses will not do this until the chapter of his death in Deuteronomy 24. That's when he will do this. He will go up on that mountain. He will survey the goodness of the land given to the people of Israel. And he will die. Look westward, northward, southward, eastward. Look at all the directions. Look at it with your eyes. But you're going to have to look for you're not going over. You shall not go over this Jordan. 
In verse 28, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. That's what the book of Joshua narrates the fulfillment of. It narrates Joshua being strengthened and encouraged by Moses and the Lord, who's going to go over now the, the river Jordan, and he will be the new head, the new Moses, the, the new head of the people of Israel, and he, through the mighty conquest, shall put them into possession of that land. And it results in a division that looks like this, with all of the different allotted territories. This is the result of Joshua putting them into possession of it. And so Moses says in verse 29, We remained... In the valley opposite Beth Peor. And Beth Peor, Mount Peor, right beside the Dead Sea, is an area about right here. It's not far from Pisgah and Nebo. It's Beth Peor that was the scene of the whole Moabite and Israel conflict in Numbers 22 to 24 with Balaam. One of the scenes in Balaam's story is Balaam going up to a mountain at Baal Peor to oversee the land with King Balak of Moab. And at Baal Peor, the Israelites in Numbers 25 join with other Midianite women and they engage in sexual immorality. It's that whole story where Phineas takes a spear and he spears a fornicating couple in their tent. It's a wild scene of Numbers 22 to 25 with the Balaam oracles and the climax of it with Phineas' story. But it's in this Baal Peor area. And Moses says, we're remaining there now in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So that in this vicinity, they will be poised as a people to enter the promised land across the Jordan, but without Moses. Because this is the area in which he will die. He will climb Pisgah and die. When we read Deuteronomy chapter 3, I want to make some connections here in our last few minutes together about how the Old and New Testaments relate with language that we see here. First of all, there is an expectation that they're going to enter the promised land. You've heard me say before, and it bears repeating, that the land in the Old Testament was an echo of the sacred space lost in the Garden of Eden. That man was made by God as image bearers, male and female, that we might dwell with God in the space where we have been placed by the Lord for His glory. And that we would be uh, those honoring Him, worshiping Him, and living for the glory of God, and subduing and exercising dominion. Genesis 1 and 2 lay out this mandate. And Adam and Eve are exiled out of the Garden of Eden. Later on in the Genesis narrative, Abraham is promised a land. And that land is going to be the land of Israel. West, it's the land of Canaan at the time, but it's west of the Jordan River. Even though some of the Israelites, two and a half tribes, are going to end up on the east side, setting aside that for a moment. This land of Canaan is a, an echo of space that was lost that's now being promised to the people of God. Not because Canaan is Eden. It's not. Eden was over by the Tigris-Euphrates rivers. Um, this is a land that is Eden-like in the sense that it's going to be a place where the people of God are to enter and subdue and exercise dominion. And they're to live for the glory of God and be faithful image bearers there. And yet they will be exiled from this land as well. Babylon is going to conquer them because they become a wayward people. 
The land in Eden and the land of promise in Canaan are all part in the Old Testament storyline of shadows or types of a coming new creation. So what I want you to know is the Israelites in the Old Testament were promised a land, but the book of Hebrews tells us that even the Old Testament Israelites knew this was not what would be ultimate. Let me give you an example in Hebrews eleven thirteen. The people who were the patriarchs died in faith, having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, acknowledging they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. But if they'd been thinking about the land from which they'd gone out, they'd have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be their God, and he's prepared for them a city. This language in uh, Hebrews 11, I think it's picked up in Hebrews 12 with this new Jerusalem, the Mount Zion that is above. The Old Testament talks about a Jerusalem and a Zion and a land of promise. And the New Testament talks about a new creation and a new Jerusalem and a heavenly Zion. And the Old Testament shadows are fulfilled in Christ and his church promises. Both what Christ has inaugurated and what he will fulfill at his return. This land and the hope for it is picked up in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Because Joshua, the writer says, didn't actually achieve the kind of rest that the people of God most deeply need. You and I were made for rest. Not simply the ceasing of activity. I'm talking about the enjoyment of and the embrace of all that it means to walk with God and trust God as our everlasting joy and refuge. A kind of rest that sin disrupts. And when these Israelites enter the promised land under Joshua, they're being given glimpses of rest. When God gives them rest from their enemies, from those of Jericho or those of Ai or those of other parts in the land, it's the longing that we will have rest with God from all of our enemies. From sin and from death and from every other giant that comes against the people. And the language of Jesus in the New Testament is that he says to the weary and heavy laden, I want you to come to me because what I have to give you is rest. I want you to find in me your rest and to hope for what is to come that what God will bring to pass in fulfillment will be the consummative rest that the Old Testament could only foreshadow. This is good news for us. Because this means that in the Old and New Testament, the writers are reading these stories as shadows and patterns of new covenant fulfillment. I'm going to say that one more time. It means that when we read the New Testament's authors, how they, uh, here's so much for saying that one more time. (laughs) We read how the New Testament authors read the Old Testament. They are seeing the Old Testament as having shadows and patterns of new covenant fulfillment. And that means the promised land looks forward to a new creation. That's why, that's why we like to sing about being bound for the promised land. Who's going to come and go with me? That's why we like to think about crossing the Jordan and crossing that river. Because in the Old Testament, that was about how the people of God considered their hope and the receiving of all that God had for them. So we talk that way. 
And we sing that way. And we do so because we're careful Bible readers. And we know that the New Testament reads the Old Testament in this way. A better land awaits us. And Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, reigns, risen and ascended. And He must put all His enemies under His feet. He is a true and greater Joshua. And He reigns to bring victory to His church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That's better news than the Joshua conquest. Christ builds His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a promise of spiritual conquest and victory for the people of God in the age to come. Amidst the toils of this life, the suffering and persecution of this age, that doesn't vanish and go away. But we march onward by faith toward a land of promise. We are like those remnant of Israelites who were trusting in God and in covenant with God. It's just not an old covenant. That was a covenant that could be broken. We're in a new covenant where the Lord Jesus has sealed for us the surety of our, our hope. Think of it this way. Moses was in the old covenant, but he was denied the inheritance. That will not happen for anyone in Christ. It, it is not possible for us to be in Christ and not receive all that Christ has redeemed for us. It is the case that we are in a new covenant that by nature, it is really new. It is not a covenant we break. It is a covenant Christ has sealed by His body and blood. So we sing things like, In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Let's pray.